Hello there, donkeys. It is uh, Wednesday, the 27th of December, 2017. And this is the promotional my practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll go for about 83 or 4 minutes with your questions, your comments, your bitches, your gripes, your smart-ass remarks, everything um, from MMA Fighting's comment section where this window is embedded. It's the live chat. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I'm excited to be here. It is the last live chat of 2017. Can you believe that? I feel like the year has flown by. There were periods where it dragged, but basically it just zoomed past us. No? Yeah, it did. Um, so what will we talk about today? We'll talk about the year that was, of course. We'll talk about the year ahead, 2018. We also have one last major MMA event in 2017, this weekend's UFC 219, Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm. So that'll be that. Um, we'll get into that as well. I have my coffee today. I didn't. I don't really need much for Christmas. I asked for one major thing. I got a couple things, but this is the major one I got. I got the Ember Cup. You can see it's the light should be on here. Well, it's not, but um, I have a cup that keeps your coffee warm. And you could say, well, that who cares? Well, if you work from home like me, even if you work in an office, uh, it's incredible. You can regulate the temperature about where you want it to stay so it never goes below that. The only thing is you have to kind of keep it charged a lot. It doesn't hold a charge very well, but it pairs with your phone, and your phone has a Bluetooth settings. You can preset your coffee. So I set mine at 141. That's where I keep it. Keep it nice and toasty. Uh, so even when you get to the bottom of the mug, your coffee is still at the perfect temperature. It's kind of jarring at first, actually. Mmm. Delicioso. So, a bit of a game changer for your boy. Um, okay. They also make a travel mug, which I've not had. And all the way, this is not a plug. People are like, oh, they must be plugging you to do this. God only knows I wish I could. But no, this is free service. I just love it so much that I had to tell folks about it. It's gratis. Mm. You can see the on-off switch there. All right. Let's get to this, shall we? Not a moment to waste as I've wasted moments already. All right, first question. It's unusual. Ruslan Magomedov. Hi, Luke. Do you know what is happening with Ruslan Magomedov? I know he got caught by USADA more than a year ago, but I haven't seen news of a suspension. Do you know when he'll fight again? I don't know. Um, he was suspended, like, what, somewhere in sometime in 2016, if memory serves? Um, and didn't he? I looked... I looked at his record earlier. I didn't see anything on there that stood out to me. He had, I think, a few decisions in the UFC, nothing of overall great significance. Um, so, no, I don't have any news about Ruslan Magomedov, but nor have I really investigated that claim in any capacity whatsoever. Do you know when he'll fight again? I do not. I do not. Um, but that's the year it is, where the first question of the very last chat is about a donk. Um, but, no, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Uh, I did see that there was an article today by the chief WADA investigator in the New York Times who wrote an opinion column. Basically, I don't know if you guys saw this, but, um, you know, it, there are, there is, there's a bit of a blanket ban on Russia, but you can compete in the Pyong, Pyeongchang uh, Winter Olympics if you qualify individually and you can, you know, serve under this, like, you know, flag uh, I forget what the exact designation is, but it, it includes the word Russia in the name of it. 
you know, sort of, uh, you know, participating athlete from the country of Russia. So sort of some sort of like um, euphemistic designation for what is basically just being a Russian athlete. In any case, the uh, the guy who wrote the article was the former head investigator for WADA. And uh, he basically believes that a blanket ban is justified, that the Paralympics did a blanket ban and that it was a good idea. But more importantly, it turns out this guy has a long background as being part of the DEA. I always like it when you see things like that because certainly there are meaningful differences between the two. But every time someone says, well, the war on drugs is really different from anti-doping. Yeah, sure it is. I mean, there's lots of differences. There's lots of overlap too. Not least of which is that any kind of, I mean, I don't know if you can call it necessarily in every case criminal enforcement, but any kind of, what do you want to call it? Rule enforcement. Um, there is heavy overlap between those two worlds in those cases. And that was another example. In any case, so a fair amount of Russian athletes are going to be able to participate. Um, but yeah, I always enjoy seeing stuff like that. All right. Someone says, on a totally unrelated note, would it be possible to reinstate some of the regular posters who've been banned but are not racist, sexist a-holes? Or would you be able to speak about the MMA fighting banning philosophy? It's obviously orders of magnitude better than the one on your sister sites, but it's still a mystery how relatively harmless posters keep getting banned. Thanks. Um, good question. I don't have an answer for you because I don't control that or really have any... Um, my work is pretty much siloed around my individual efforts. There's some overlap into the site functionality um, time to time, but generally speaking, I do this live chat. I do my Monday morning analyst. There's a few other things per month that I'm required to do. Um, and in a previous role, I'd be in charge of this kind of thing. I'm not in charge of this kind of thing. I can ask the folks who are and what their policies are, um, such that there is a coherent policy, but this is something I'm no longer involved in, haven't been for um, well over a year now. So, um, but look, it's the, the reality about a comment section, whether it's MMA fighting or bloody elbow or any other site is that they're very, very difficult to maintain. I know it may not seem like that way, or you can find a guy who seems reasonable in nine posts. And then in the 10th post, they say something so outrageous that you don't really know what to do about it. Bloody elbow used to have sort of a three strikes and you're out policy or that, you know, if they, if someone was sufficiently contrite after the fact, they'd let them back in. They in Bloody Elbow, I was more familiar with that one because I, I had sort of set the tone for that one early. We would ban early and often because what, I just, what you just sort of find is that, look, there can be a part where you are banning to the point where you lose the community more generally. But if you're not heavy-handed, your comment section, and again, I'm speaking of my time on Bloody Elbow, if you're not heavy-handed, what ends up happening, I found over and over again, is that the site can turn, or at least the comment section can turn to sort of a basically unusable place very quickly, very quickly. You have to have incredibly tight standards and ruthless enforcement. And then there is some collateral damage to that question is how much of that you're comfortable with. And again, the question is, do you have so much collateral damage that you no longer have anything left um, for there to be something? I mean, you're trying to salvage something, right? As you're trying to salvage a place for reasonable people to come and discuss, enjoy one another's company, disagree, agree, just be fans together. If you're so heavy-handed and you lose that, then you get a problem. But I've found that, generally speaking, people who complain about being banned, this is generally speaking, there are obviously exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, those who complain about being banned, um, at least insofar as my purview is concerned, they'll claim, I don't know what I did. And then you show them what they did, and they're like, oh, yeah, my bad. Um, that there is a certain unwillingness to recognize their own behavior 
as, you know, unhelpful towards a larger community and fostering a sense of, you know, shared, happy and meaningful experience. Um, but in, as, as far as who got banned, I don't know. And as far as um, what that means, I don't know. Sorry, y'all. I'm not really involved in that anymore. Uh, okay. It deserves an explanation. I can ask around. I will ask around on the site and see who does that. Um, okay, Josh Barnett. That's another one who got caught by USADA a while ago, but there was no news of a suspension. Any news on him? The last we heard from him, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. He had claimed that this, his people were looking into um, whether or not there was a tainted supplement issue, but that was the last of it. And someone's asking about Ben Rothwell. I completely forgot about Ben Rothwell. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to find out what's happening with Ben Rothwell. Um, before the next chat. So by 2018, I hope to have an answer for you. But that's a really, really, really good question. Um, I don't know what happened to Big Ben. But he was having quite the year, wasn't he? Let's see, when was he, when did he last fight? I can't even keep track anymore. So his last contest was the loss to JDS now in 2016. So he didn't fight at all in 2017. Whoa. Hmm. That's a good question. I shall look into it. All right. Uh, this is an emailed question. Luke, I'm not sure if you will have the chance to read this prior to your live chat. If you do, however, I'd be appreciative if you could give me your pick on the 2017 Fighter of the Year. Personally, I give it to DJ for breaking the title defense record and getting perhaps the submission of the year over a highly respected scrambler and grappler. Okay, so there's a lot of different ways you can go with this one. And and the to me, it's not as clear-cut as it has been in certain other years. Um, I think there's a variety of defensible answers here. And again, always remember, when you're doing one of these uh, awards for the end of the year, er everyone's going to have a very different criteria. And so arguing about who is or who isn't really is a nonsensical activity unless we firmly established what the criteria is. So if I have a certain set of criteria and you have a overlapping but in some ways significantly different set of criteria why are we arguing over who should be the winner because we're not arguing over who deserves the same award at that point i mean they, we can call it the same thing but they meaningfully become something different i think what i'm looking for is um a certain level of activity so the more activity the better that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a ton of activity but um when other things begin to become equal the amount of activity I think should matter. So to me, more activity is typically better. Uh, number two, number of ranked opponents, one defeated. Uh, number three, how easily did they defeat them? You know, were there submissions, were there knockouts, were they all decisions, were they all split decisions? You know, where in there? So, you know, if you fought four times and you fought four top five guys and they were all split decisions, you know, certainly that's an incredible amount of achievement in a calendar year. But if someone else fought three times and maybe had three finishes, I might weight that a little bit more heavily. So that's what I'm looking for. And I think inside of those wins, you know, how were they won? How decisively were they won? And what was the greater context of them? In other words, was there a title defense? Was there, in the case you mentioned here for Demetrius Johnson, was there some kind of record on the line? Um, so it wasn't just that it was dominant. It was dominant in a five-round title fight. It was dominant in a five-round title fight where there was this overarching record that could have been reached, this this threshold that, looked, that we were looking to get past. Um, all of those things I sort of weigh together. Uh, and there can be a bit of a balancing act there about what that all means. I also look at strength of schedule. 
you know, how difficult were the opponents, not really where they ranked, but I think, and this is where it begins to get a little bit dicey. You know, I personally will rank certain divisions competition as more important than another one. In other words, if somebody was in a weight class that I did not perceive to be particularly strong or they had wins, um, you know, at the top of the division and someone else was in a very tough weight class and they were all outside the top five, but let's say within the top 10, again, I might weight those other ones more heavily depending on a set of the other factors. So for me, there are three candidates you can pick from that I think really hold up against that criteria and probably hold up against someone else's criteria as well. In no particular order, the three I think would qualify as number one, Demetrius Johnson. He only fought twice, but uh, let's look at his record here, just just so I don't jack any part of this up. Uh, let me put this together for you. All right, so what did he do in 2017? He only fought twice, but he fought Wilson Hayes in uh, April, where he, number one, earned a performance of the night, and he submitted a former world champion, a black belt, and Herberto Godoy, okay? And he beat him up without hardly any challenge. Um, Wilson Hayes is a higher-end not really a black belt, but a higher-end flyweight fighter anywhere in the world. I believe he was a former belt holder for Elite XC. That also matters to me. Um, and that's where he tied the record for most consecutive title defenses at 10 with Anderson Silva. So to me, that's very, very, very impressive. He beat a high-ranked guy. He submitted him in the process. He took virtually no damage. And he tied a UFC record during a title fight. Very, very impressive. Then you go to Ray Borg, which is the second win. He wins that in October. There he will. There he set the record for the most consecutive title defenses at 11. He also earned another performance of the night. He did it in a five round contest. Now, Ray Borg is an interesting case because I don't think he made his pro debut until he was in 2012 or 2013. So, um, I don't rate that win as tough as he is, and maybe he's better than Wilson Hayes. I rate that win in terms of the strength of schedule slightly under what I might for some other fighters, which we'll talk about in just a second, but. Breaking that title defense record and doing it with one of the most incredible arm bars I've ever seen, arguably, and in my judgment, clear winner, submission of the year, if nothing else. You know, again, these greater contexts. So he wins on a number of contexts with the title fight and breaking the record um, to doing it and, and finishing a guy. Uh, those things are all off, off the charts. A little bit, I rank a little bit less the strength of schedule with Ray Borg. And again, I, he only fought twice. So, um, but. Given what else was happening in the year, he's a pretty strong contender. Not a perfect resume, but pretty damn strong. I think the other name of the three that you could go with would be Max Holloway. Now, Max Holloway's resume is interesting for a number of reasons here. He, too, only fought twice. What did he do? He beat the all-time greatest featherweight of all time. Now, you, you can say Conor McGregor beat Jose Aldo, and that's, I mean, not only beat him, he beat him to the point where he changed the way the, the sport perceives him. He didn't just beat him. He, he changed him in a way. So it's not to say that Jose Aldo is uh, a better featherweight ultimately than Conor McGregor, at least not when they fought. But to me, and Max Holloway may end up surpassing this, to me you have to have a body of work at the weight class. And Conor McGregor's body of work at the weight class is very strong, but because he basically beat Jose Aldo and then just dipped out, he didn't give himself an opportunity to really um, you know, create – you know, more achievement down there. Maybe he could have. Um, to me, Jose Aldo winning like he did in 2009 and then dominating the weight class for six years. So it's just a tremendous body of work over time that to me makes him the greatest featherweight of all time. So Max Holloway, what did he do? He beat that guy. He beat that guy off a rebound performance that the other guy had at UFC 200 over Jose Aldo. And he finished him. Um, and and he finished him with strikes. Now, he's not the first person to do that. 
but it was sort of an auditing performance where he just slowly chipped at him and broke him down and then clearly showed. I mean, I always talk about this on the Monday Morning Analyst. When you look at somebody and you're evaluating them, you really want to ask yourself between two fighters if there's a close contest or if you're doing like what I call the autopsy of a result, whose offense was more dynamic? Like who was doing more varied and interesting things? And in that case, it's clearly Max Holloway, the way in which he was pushing Aldo out of the pocket, then catching with the end of the movement. Um, you know, the, his footwork, um, the way he corrals side to side, uh, and then sort of changes the game plan over time, or at least not the game plan, but changes the implementation of, of his fighting strategies per round. It was just sort of remarkable. So he wins the title that way. Then he follows it up. He takes a fight without hesitation. Six months later, faces the same guy. And yes, the fight went longer slightly, but in the end, it looked like an easier victory to me. It was never really in doubt. Demolish him. And in fact, the finish came a lot easier once he had him hurt. Um, it wasn't like the one at UFC 212 where it was this prolonged beating on the ground. This one, when it came, it kind of came, not all of a sudden, but mm, there wasn't as much resistance this time. And of course, if you go back and you watch the, you know, the first and the second fight, which you notice is a lot of the same things were there. A lot of things are different. He circles right in one way. He circles all the way left another way, you know, so showing this, mo these, these, these modes he can fight in these modalities that are also very different. So to me, you not only beat the greatest of all time in your weight class, you stopped him. And you did it again six months later when you're supposed to fight someone else. You took that challenge. There was no issue about it. Now, on the downside about it, you know, it almost would have been better if he had fought Frankie Yeager because you would have had another former champion that you would have had on your resume. You know, you already beat the guy. We talked about it previously. Once you beat a guy six months later, enough time for the other person to overcome. Typically not. You know, so if there's a gap between them, it'll just be re-revealed six months later rather than than one guy doing enough to close that gap. Um. But, you know, showing the technical acumen that he did, uh, it, doing both of those in title fights like he did against an all-time great like he did, I think those put him in the running as well. So either of those, I think, are great choices. You can debate deb based on your criteria and how you weight certain criteria about what should be more. Those are the two obvious ones. And I'm going to throw in one more name there. I think Cynthia Calvillo, Calvillo, however you want to pronounce it. I really think she deserves to be taken seriously. Now, that depends on how she does this weekend. If she loses, then absolutely out of the running. No, no, no question about it. It just leaves you the two choices there. Um, RDA, I think, would be an honorable mention, but for me, it's those three. Now, if if Calvillo Calvillo wins on Saturday, you'd have five fights in a calendar year, by far the most active. Now, she's not fighting Jose Aldo's um, and and Wilson Hayes's, but she would be if she wins four times in the UFC. Um, incredible technical acumen, uh, a number of I think. I think, how many stoppages does she have in the UFC? I think of her three fights so far, she's had two fights, excuse me, two finishes. Let's see. Let's look at her record. Uh, so she came into the UFC. Let's see. She fought Montana De La Rosa at Legacy Fighting Alliance in January. She won that via TKO in the third round. She comes in, faces Amanda Cooper. She wins in the first round, submission. She comes in, faces Pearl Gonzalez, submits her in the third. She did fight Joanna Calderwood, and that one was a little bit dicey in terms of the decision but i thought Cal calvijo was your easy winner of course it took place at a catch weight of 118 bouts because calderwood missed weight 118 pounds excuse me because calderwood missed weight she won that one and she did that in the other person's hometown now if she goes in she beats carla esparza to me five wins in a calendar year four in the ufc let's see how she wins but let's say she stops her at some point in the second round you have three of those four wins by submission um Again, the strength of schedule is not up there with with a Jose Aldo or some of the other ones, and you're not breaking any kind of records. But to me, if you're asking me asking me what matters the most, you know, certainly title fights matter more than non-title. 
So I can understand why you wouldn't pick her, but that amount of activity is very hard for me to overlook personally. I think competing that consistently and maintaining that degree of um, of ability is very hard to do at the elite ranks. Uh, strength of schedule matters here in that case, in that sense. She loses to both out to the other guys, but she went. She would beat them out on activity, and she would potentially beat them out on um, both of those guys got two stoppages. But to get you know uh, three or four, maybe four or five in a calendar year, that that that's debatable. I understand, but those are my three that I would look at as as your top choices. Um, Darren Till versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Is this the fight? Uh, excuse me. This is the fight I want to see more than anything in 2018. What do you think of this fight? I I I think any of those welterweight matchups that we discussed, the MMA beat, are all pretty great. Um, I don't necessarily have. I'm like dying to see this one, but uh, I'd be happy to see it. I think it'd be good. But to me, there's a lot of fights at 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 170. I want to see. Frankly, I know he's got a fight lined up with Emil Mech in January, but I I still kind of think that Darren Till versus uh, Kamaru Usman's the way to go. People are like, well, you're killing off a contender. I'm not really worried about that. You're asking me like the big fights I want to see. I'm not thinking what's good for that guy. What's good for that guy. I'm thinking what's good for me. What's good? What, what do I want to see? Who are the two fighters that are in reasonably close proximity where we're talking about potential title shots down the line if they win that one or maybe one more? Um, and those two are, are reasonably close enough for me. I know there's some gaps in between. I know there's some fighters in between who would say, no, me first, I understand that. But I don't take those rankings as ironclad. Neither should you. They're highly debatable. And if they're reasonably close, the question is, what what is what kind of test does the other person need to pass? I think a striker like Darren Till could potentially give a guy like Kamaru Usman some serious problems. And vice versa, I think a physical specimen like Kamaru Usman, who can wrestle his ass off and doesn't really get tired, that would be an interesting test for Darren Till too. So... Um, that's kind of why I want to see that one more than two sort of interesting strikers facing off where it could be a lot of stick and move, stick and move, stick and move, and not necessarily exactly what we think it is. Um, do you think it will happen? Hmm. I don't know. Wonder Boys people kind of poo-pooed it, didn't they? So no, I'm going to say no. And just for fun, a quick breakdown. We'll have to think about that one. I think it would depend on Till's ability to corral uh, and Till's ability to exchange in the pocket. He's got that sort of Muay Thai lean back style. I wonder if he could get caught with it, if he could, if, if Wonderboy could have him bite on certain traps um, or uh, getting him uh, confused about range, jumping into certain spots, watching him lean, and you're still in a position to catch him at the end of the foot. That'd be kind of interesting too. So this would really be a case of Darren Till's ability to corral and then regulate distance. I would favor him slightly because... Uh, I think he can take a good shot, and I think he's gotten a lot better. And I think his sense about that lean is very, very strong. Um, but hard to say exactly. Someone says Max Holloway for me for a fighter of the year. Someone says um, Aldo finish. Excuse me, Holloway finishing Aldo twice is more impressive than what DJ did this year, in my opinion, regardless of record. It's debatable. Sherdog had us at Robert Whitaker. I think Robert Whitaker is another choice. I wouldn't go that way, but I can understand. I can totally understand why somebody would. Someone says beating Jacare and Romero and finishing the year as undisputed middleweight champ is pretty phenomenal. Twelve months, agreed. Oh, and not many people realize this, but he also won gold at the ninety-seven kilos in the Australian National Championships um, between those two fights. Also very impressive. Wouldn't count towards this, but. I recognize that that's a significant achievement. 
Someone says Francis Ngannou. Let's see, look at Francis Ngannou's year. Francis Ngannou. What exactly did he do in 2017? Here was his year in 2017. He also fought twice, beat former heavyweight champ Andre Arlovsky in a minute and 32 seconds, and then he beat Alistair Overeem, the former strike force and K1 champ, dream champ, uh, in a minute and 42 seconds. So to me, those are extremely impressive. A little bit older in the case of Andre Arlovsky, guy who's on a five-fight losing streak um, at some, one point in the la in his career. To me, I'm going to weigh Calvijo a little bit higher than that, but I understand that you know, we're talking about splitting hairs here in certain cases. Someone says, talk about talking about missing weight, I find it really unfair that Josh Emmett would be ranked in the 145-pound division when he didn't make the 145-pound limit. It should have been like a title fight. You miss weight, you give 30% of your purse to his opponent, which he did. Can't get any bonuses. He didn't. And can't move up in the rankings of the division, or better yet, do what they do in Japan. If a fighter who missed weight wins, it's ruled a no contest. But some of those things he, that already happened uh, did. Um, that's interesting about if you win, you don't move up in the division. I actually don't think that's a bad idea. Uh, you shouldn't necessarily lose a spot. But I guess if everyone is moving up around you, it's sort of inevitable. I would say you couldn't be dropped out of the rankings if you win and you missed weight. Um, but then it gets to a point where, like, if you missed weight by one pound, let's say you made a 147 and you didn't even get the one pound allowance, is that one pound why you won? Like, does anyone really think those two pounds were two and a half pounds, I guess, or why Emmett won? Um, Emmett told me he came in lighter for that fight than he did the previous fight where he made weight. Like on fight night, he was about three or four pounds less than he normally is. So it's like, was that why he won? I don't know. But if we're talking about ways to be more punitive in combating weight cutting, um, preventing somebody from being ranked higher than their already existing position, I could, I could be swayed. I could be swayed on that. That doesn't seem like, on its face, that doesn't seem like a terrible idea. Uh, if a fighter who missed weight wins is ruled a no contest. I don't agree with that. Um, if there is a, look, if someone is five pounds over and they win, I recognize that can be troublesome, especially if we're talking about those weight classes that are separated by 10 pounds where Tim Elliott doesn't even take the fight because the guy's halfway to another weight class. But in the case of this one where a guy is a couple pounds over and some change and Ricardo Lamas accepts it, uh, if you're accepting the contest, it should not be a, then it, it deserves to go forward. Now, you could call it a catchweight bout rather than a divisional bout, and I could I could basically live with that, but I couldn't live with the idea that the best-case scenario for you was no contest. In that case, I mean, maybe Japan's different, but if I knew that the, my best case was I can't move up in rankings, I'm going to give away 30% of my purse, um, do I really want to take the fight anymore? You have to give these guys some incentive to take the fight, right? If we're asking, and especially in the case of Emmett, who's filling in on short notice, you know, it's one thing if you guys miss weight, or if not you guys, if, if a guy out there misses weight and, you know, he had 12 weeks, well, I mean, that's just unprofessional. I mean, I don't know what you, what do you say about something like that. But if someone's got three weeks, you know, I think a certain degree of mercy and understanding is is important here. So, um, so no, I'm not a big fan of the heavy punitization of missed weight cuts. Nice and toasty. Can you all see the steam coming off that? Hard to tell, I guess. Delicioso. All right. 
two potential stars in the making at 115 pounds. Now that Rose is the UFC strawweight champion, there are a lot of exciting matchups in that division. Mackenzie Dern, of course, is also a major prospect for the division considering her elite grappling background at such a young age. However, I think two of the biggest prospects in the division at the moment are older than both Dern and Rose. I was thinking about how interesting a matchup between Calvillo and Tatiana Suarez would be, and then I realized how much potential they both have. One, they are both Mexican-Americans, and both are palatable to the media in terms of appearance and personality. Fair enough. Uh, Calvillo has already had impressive wins over respectable talents like Joanne Calderwood and Pearl Gonzalez. She also has her big fight this weekend with former champ Carla Esparza. Whether she wins or loses, her other performances are enough uh, to solidify her as a serious contender of the division. Agreed. Suarez has not had a ton of exposure yet due to timeout, but we have seen her in very impressive. She also has a compelling background of having to give up her goals of representing the U.S. in the Olympics due to her thyroid cancer, surviving the cancer, and persisting to pursue a career in MMA. Agreed. Personal anecdote, this person writes, I was at UFC Norfolk and Suarez's victory got a lot of buzz despite being a decision and being on the undercard. After the fight, I was waiting in a line and a woman came up to me and asked me who won the Suarez fight. She became excited when I told her that Suarez completely shut down Viviana Pereira, which tells me Suarez is already becoming a fan favorite. I think it would be fair to say that Suarez may need a signature win or two against more notable opponents first, but how excited would you be, be to see a fight between them? And how much potential star power do you think each have? Well, to the points about star power, you guys, I think your question really kind of answers it for me. I don't have a whole lot to add in that capacity. But what really excites me about them as grapplers is, um, one, in Suarez, you have an aggressive shutdown grappler. And by shutdown grappler, what I mean is someone who likes to take top position. She can work from bottom. She has a lot of bottom game, but she likes to work from top, has a lot of success on top, and is the kind of person who has, like, for example, when they take mount, the first thing they do with mount is they don't put their hips uh, under their shoulders. They put their shoulders forward and their hips back. Why? Because they're driving their hips into your opponent's hips and they're stretching them out. It's a total control position. If your hips are under your shoulders, that's not wrong necessarily. It depends on what you're trying to do. I'm really pointing out that she goes in there and when she takes mount, she she like she's like a police officer, like cuffs it down, and then she begins to rain punishment. And as the person begins to squirm a little bit, then she'll let loose, but only to go to yet another dominant, tightly uh, manipulated control position. She has this real shutdown punishment. Might open up a little bit the window. For someone to walk through, but then they just walk into another trap. That's 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 really what she's really good at. Very very shutdown style. She can work from the back, um, and she's very strong and aggressive and smart and athletic on top. Right, so you really have to like that. Calvijo is a little bit different. She can, I think, she wants to be a bit of a shutdown grappler on top, but is very willing to take risks and has a lot of unorthodox techniques. Taking the back off a gator roll again, I'll talk about it all year long because I've never seen anything like that in my life. That was just absolutely incredible for her to, to even attempt something like that. So very, very interesting that when you when you win a match of those two. I think that would be an, an insane ground contest. I think it would be a battle of wills. I think it would be a battle of positions. It would be one of those grappling matches where it's like, why can't more grappling matches be like this? Uh, so I would love to see it. Tatiana Suarez hasn't quite had the push that Calvillo had. Calvillo also had a bit of a you know auspicious beginning in terms of um, which card she was fighting on and what circumstances. But... Um, but yeah, I think they could be breakout stars potentially for the UFC in 2018. Suarez has a lot more room to, to go. That's especially true if Asparza loses UFC 219. But I, I think you've I think you've accurately pinpointed um, you've accurately pinpointed some stars in the making for sure. Uh, Condit versus Magni. What are your expectations for this fight, man? 
Man, how are you guys feeling about this one? Because it looks to me like Bob Lawler, you know, has, again, in some ways defied all expectations by being able to even be this competitive. But on the other hand, it seems to be slowing down a little bit, you know. Um, and Conda didn't look great against Demi and Maya. Now, Neil Magny's a very different fighter. He is rangy. He can fight in different, a lot of different ways, and he's good on the ground, but he's not Demi and Maya. And that, again, a shutdown grappler, sort of what I'm talking about there, right? Where you make one move and they're setting up a submission, or you move the other way and they're, you know, setting up another dominant control position, right? That's and then in between you're eating elbows and punches. So he's not quite like that, but but Neil Magny is good everywhere. I expect you know, look, we know how Carlos Condit likes to fight. He likes to fight at range. He likes to play with people who like to collapse the pocket. Um, you know, he's got a wide array of of combinations. Um, he's got a wide array of combinations for people who move in different directions. Um, you know, he, again, so he'll throw a one, two, and the next time we'll throw a one and then come over with a slashing elbow as someone moves into them. You know, he's got a lot of different tricks like that. So, but, but generally speaking, likes to be a boxing and kickboxing range, likes the circle, likes to be on his toes. That's how he prefers to compete. Uh, Neil Magny can do that a little bit, but I think Neil Magny might want to play with working in the clinch. He might want to play with sticking behind a jab. And you might want to play with at least threatening the takedown, if not outright getting it. Carlos Conde is by no means bad on the ground, but I wonder if Neil Magny can at least drain some energy or steal around or something just by taking it there. He, I mean, Debbie and Maya made him look like he wasn't all that good, but he is really good actually on the ground. So to me, if I'm Neil Magny, I'm thinking to myself, okay, where does this fight need to be for him to win? Um, what, what does he want to do? And I know a lot of fighters think I'm not worried about what he wants to do, I'm worried about what I want to do. But when you got a guy who, you know, sort of singularly that's a little unfair. Demi and Maya is more of a singular type of fighter, but when a guy who semi-singularly fights in a way, I think being cognizant of that really enhances your chances. You don't want to just do the ante of that, but what you want to do is you want to say, okay, under these conditions, he has a good chance to win. Under these conditions, I have a good chance to win. What do I need to do to establish and maintain these conditions? And I think once that he identifies those and works out a game plan around them, then you begin to say, I am going to worry about what I'm doing, but I've worried about what I'm doing in a planning and strategic way to work to my strengths and to his weaknesses. Uh, rather than, you know, here are his strengths. I'm just going to do the opposite of that. Then you're catering to him. You still have to cater to yourself, but I think being cognizant of that and what he can do is is critical. So it's to me, it's going to be what phase of the game they're competing in. Um, that'll be interesting to see. How do you think Condit will look? Honestly, have no clue. I know some people have a lot of confidence in him, and I'm willing to to remain agnostic. You know, um, how's he going to look? My hunch is not as good as he once did, but I can't, it's hard. The, the longer I stay in MMA. And the more I do this, the more it becomes clear that there, there's certain things you don't want to ignore. And then there are certain conditions you don't want to be too sure of either. And getting that right is harder than ever. So my hunch is that all those battles mean something. Do they mean enough for him to say that he can't beat Neil Magny? That we'll see. How do you think the fight goes? Again, I'm going to be very agnostic on this one. General thoughts. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think this is a great test for both guys. Um, Neil Magny needs to get a win over a guy with a name. He's got one, a couple of those already, but this would be really, you know, he's also faced some setbacks. You know, the Larkin setback was was a bad one. And 
Um, the Maya setback was another bad one. He's had, he's had setbacks along the way, so I think getting on the winning track would be really kind of important for him. Uh, and doing it against Carlos Condit into your card is big. And then on top of that, I think for Carlos Condit, there's just, you know, Carlos Condit has a bit of a Diaz appeal, not in the sense that he's some, you know, guy who doesn't show up to press conferences. In fact, he's, um, you know, quite, I think, generally speaking, quite giving with the media. He's been willing to talk to me at times when he didn't necessarily have a whole lot to say, which, uh, you know, which I can appreciate, you know, he at least wants to be communicative. So um, he, not, not in that sense, but in terms of having this cult appeal for violence, you know, he absolutely is that way. Just a guy who you know is not going to fight in a way that's not, okay, the DS fight notwithstanding, is not going to fight in a way that's not crowd-pleasing. It's amazing to go back and look at that first Diaz fight, and afterward, everyone's like, Carlos Condit ran the whole time, you know, and, and it looked like he was sort of developing some kind of reputation when, in fact, now you look at him, it's like, where is the god of violence who has left us low these many years, you know? It's amazing how perceptions can change like that. So to me, I'm really looking to see who can um, – both guys the, – the winner here – let's put it this way. The winner here is going to really benefit from a, the unique significance of the victory over the other guy. That's not always true in certain cases. Uh, I think it's very true in this one. What defined MMA in 2017? Before anything else, I hope this past year has left left with but pleasant memories. And that task was avoided by avoiding watching Bright. <laughs> Do you guys see Bright? It's amazing to me that people are trying to defend this uh, movie. Uh, there is a very cool Joe Rogan cameo in there. So that part's cool. I won't ruin it. I'll just say that. So, you know, shouts to Joe Rogan and and, and uh, the cameo. That, it's a very short cameo that he has in there. That part's great. I saw that. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome. But, you know, let's just sort of talk realistically about this movie. It's a flaming pile of garbage. Um, it is a reasonably interesting sci-fi premise. Again, I'm not going to give too much away. Um, and it clearly had a, something of a budget because some of the effects in there are pretty interesting. Uh, but it, in terms of the writing, these characters are uh, uninteresting and clumsy. It's supposed to be some kind of a treatise on race, and it's a very sophomoric one. And the script at times is, I mean, you know, cringe-inducing. Um, but here's the thing. And I mentioned this before. In 2017, Netflix made eight movies. In 2018, they're looking to make 80. And the reason why is because, number one, if you have a Will Smith movie sort of native to what you're doing, this will obviously increase subscription and overall bring value to the catalog, right? This notion that, like, now you can see movies on Netflix as part of your monthly subscription fee really is a, a value add for anybody who is a subscriber. But... But more to the point, the cinema appears to be going somewhat in two different directions. If you go to the theater, you're expected to get the experience, right? I got my designated seat. Maybe you're going to IMAX. It's cold. It's dark. You have a tremendous screen in front of you. The sound system is state-of-the-art. It's a big budget, like a Star Wars level, you know, or the Avengers or something. It's a real big production. If you go home, you can still get something of a pretty decent uh, budget, like Bright, but um, it's a little bit more tailored to an audience that is looking to just stream something on an afternoon. And this all ultimately brings me to my point about the movie. The movie sucks ass, okay? It's not good. However, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say, I'll stream just about anything. It's like, what's on Netflix that I haven't seen? Oh, here's a Will Smith movie that's native to Netflix. Sure, whatever. I got a couple hours to kill. And in that sense, it's fine. Ultimately, what it looks, what it looks like to me is people want to grade it on a curve. Because they're not grading it as a movie, they're grading it as, if I go to the movies, 
and I'm spending 15 bucks on a ticket and popcorn and parking and you know everything else you get there, uh, it's expensive. So you need to have the experience fulfilled. If you're watching on Netflix, eh, you just need to get, you know, you need to kill a couple hours. It does that. But if we're asking me to grade it on, it's the same thing with Last Jedi. If you're mad about the pivot from previous Star Wars, frankly, storylines and aesthetics, then be mad about that. But that's a separate grade from whether this is a well-crafted movie. Same thing here. It's fine if you want to watch Bright just to kill a couple hours. But if you're asking me to grade it as a movie, it's super hot flaming basura. I think we have a visitor coming for the last chat of 2017. Is that is that him? Come here, buddy. Yeah. Come say hi. Look who look who I have. Look who's here. This is Barbus, everybody. Smell that microphone, buddy. Look at him. Cochino as hell. Right? Yes, I know. You're a very sweet boy. He was uh He's been dying to come up. I've been keeping him down because he's just a little annoying. And he's a very needy animal. But here he is. We're going to make some Barbas t-shirts in uh, 2017. I've already got some artwork that we're working on. And uh, I've been hearing a lot of good things from the folks who've used Teespring, which I talked about last week. Um, and uh, we're going to have some Barbas t-shirts here coming up. Right, buddy? All right. You smell like a homeless person. All right. In any case... I thought to ask the classical question that looking back, what defined the MMA scene for you in 2017? What is the big narrative you think of when discussing this year? For me, this is a very, very simple answer. The big narrative of the year. Um, when the when Endeavor, or whatever you want to call them, WMEIMG, when they first purchased the UFC, there was a feeling of, I think at first, there was a feeling of some degree of continuity. And some of that was intentional, right? Keeping Dana White on board. And there's some, I've heard conflicting stories about how he remained as part of the organization, but nevertheless, he did. There was a, they were trying to establish some continuity. You know, we're not going to upend this experience as a fan as you know it. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to ruin your common understanding of what the UFC is. Uh, but as, as months played out and as events transpired and passed, uh, and it's not solely their handiwork, but it's 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 one certain decisions that they've made. It's two. It's a certain culture that they're allowing to be developed, where the fighters have become de facto matchmakers, where weight class management becomes less important, where the a minimalization of weight classes becomes less important, where you know we call it money fights in certain cases, but even then it's just sort of a a position of um, let me walk up the ladder and if someone else comes behind me, let me yank it, um, uh, th that, that they're encouraging. To me, the big story of 2017 is that WMEIMG began to reveal itself. Um, and in some ways, I think that's good. I do, I have to say, I do kind of like their feast or famine approach in certain cases. So, for example, I don't mind there being a bit of a, you know, a dearth of bad events. Um, dog, what are you eating? I don't even have any food up here. Like, what could he possibly be eating? Hey, stop. In other words, I like it when they have three title fights. 
You know what I mean? I like it. I like. I, I think that's kind of cool. I wouldn't want them doing it all the time, but I think once in a while is fine. As we've discussed before, I don't think three title fights are the problem sometimes when it creates uh, scheduling issues after the fact. I think it can be things like um, that they have a certain amount of inventory that they owe Fox that doesn't really cater for three title fights on a certain card that can be adjusted in the next television deal. But to me, the big story of 2017, no doubt about it, is the revelation of the WME IMG preference over the sport of its of its ethos of its governing principles of its aims of its um efforts everything that really i don't you can't discuss the sport without it because you can say well there are some natural downturns to the sport that more readily define it and that's true and some of those dovetail with wmeimg's decisions um but i think the bigger story clearly is their ownership over the ufc and the decisions that they've made and the culture that they fostered has had a profound, we want to call it bleed out or trickle down effect on the variety of players that are out there from the fighters to the managers um, to the networks. Everyone is sort of absorbing this new reality that was not abundantly clear when they first took over and I think was made manifest uh, in the last 12 months. Am I the only one who thinks Ronda will fight in 2018? You might be. Hi, Luke. Unpopular opinion here, but I'm pretty sure Ronda will fight in 2018. I don't know what that dog's doing. I don't see why everyone just assumes she won't fight again because she lost to current and former champions. Sure, she looked terrible, but I'm sure the UFC can give her a more favorable matchup. Maybe even a flyweight grappler. They got Mike Jackson and CM Punk to fight in the UFC. They allowed Conor to box Floyd. I'm sure they can put Ronda in against an easy opponent, given Ronda versus anyone still sells more than almost any UFC fight. And I'm sure they'll pay her well for it, too. I've heard lots of people say Ronda won't come back because she has talked about, she hasn't, excuse me, talked about fighting again. Well, she hasn't retired either. And I'm still on the UFC roster, to be honest. I'd like to see Ronda back. She always has fun if short fights. It's an interesting theory. It's an interesting theory. I think there's something to be said for the fact that she hasn't retired. Um, Let's see what happens with this WWE nonsense. But the question for me is, um, how much damage was done by those two losses psychologically to the point where you say, get her an easy opponent? How easy does it have to be anymore? Um, and I don't mean to sell it. To your point, they could sell, I mean, if, you know, the return of Ronda Rousey, that just sells itself. And they had her fight in a title fight, 207. For all intents and purposes, the public didn't know who Amanda Nunes was either. So, yeah, for sure that could sell. I don't mean in that sense, but I mean to win. You know, I'm not saying she can beat nobody. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just wondering um, if there's that much damage psychologically. Um, what kind of fight needs to be booked in order for her to win? Can, I mean, you know, you'd be surprised what if, if if someone mentally isn't there. You know, physically, if they had a different attitude, they might be able to just absolutely tear them limb from limb. But if they're not mentally there, then we're talking about an, a drop-off of uh, performance that is hard to overstate. And I think that's sort of the reality we're living in here. Someone said, I would assume that one of the issues is that Rousey's been training more pro wrestling than MMA recently. Yes, which is a fact. Someone says, the issue isn't really that she got handled by a champion and former champion. It's that she has become so mentally broken and arguably went off the deep end. There's that as well. Those bad knockouts change people. But... I think the I think the writer or the questions there's something to be said for the fact that she hasn't retired yet. Um, what it means in the end, I don't know. 
Someone says, Chael's take on this. Uh, Rhonda didn't seem to be training much after her first loss. Doubt she is doing it now. Not like there's a lot of discussion about who's training, but she almost quit after the first loss, and the second loss was even more devastating. Yeah, it's very true. Twenty seventeen. Do you think twenty seventeen has been a good year or a bad year for MMA? We have the biggest star ever, but he boxed. UFC has new owners, but it's almost the same. Someone says, "I know this question is for Luke, but this person writes it was a bad year, just overall bad." WMEIMG needs to get it together. Fire Dana, lose the Reebok deal, and tell every fighter on the roster to stop acting like Connor. Just be yourself. Then stop selling Wolf tickets, and then MMA will be in a better place. I'm gonna actually start watching again if that happens. Um, look. When you say a bad year, what does that mean? I mean, I know this sounds pedantic, but just follow me here. Like, if someone says you had a bad year, what does that mean? Does that mean every single day was bad? No, that's not what it means. Um, does that mean every event was a disaster? No, that's at least not in this case what we're talking about. There were some really bright spots this year. I think that deserves to be noted. They were more obvious than others, but um, obviously the return of GSP, however short-lived that may have been, was particularly spectacular. Um We'll see what happens with John Jones, but UFC 214 was a pretty magical night, and there were some other ones as well. It, 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 you know, when you say it was a down year, I, I prefer the term down than bad. Although I guess you know maybe that's a meaningless distinction, but for me, it's like overall the the net decline uh, was such. Overall, the net change was decline. Right. Uh, if you look at the ratings for UFC on Fox down, if you look at the television ratings down, including some record lows, not merely for the UFC, but for Bellator, that to me really is sort of the is the uh, maybe something of a canary in the coal mine where it'd be one thing if UFC was having troubles, but Bellator was out there murdering it or, um, you know, vice versa. If yeah, maybe Bellator was having some trouble with the UFC was killing it, but that it's down generally, I think, should give everyone a little bit of pause about why that why that is. Partly it's because we have promoters operating under a circumstance where they think it's still 20, you know, 11 or something. Um, where there's this incredible thirst for content. I think there is still a thirst for content, but not as much as it used to be, at least not stateside. The real big thirst comes from the big stuff. People are hot and cold on MMA. Um, the general public is. They want to see the big stuff and they can really do without the rest of it. And I think the change in the in the way in which the product is delivered needs to reflect that. Simply putting on a ton of inventory on television, trying to sell a lot of it on pay-per-view, and then leaving some scraps on Fight Pass really is not the way to go about it. You have a global fan base, which is one of the real great things about the UFC, and that global fan base does want to see just about every piece of content in terms of the hardcore audience, the hardcore Canadian audience and the American and the Mexican and the Argentinian and the, and the Spanish and less so the French, but certainly you can go to the UK and then Ireland and uh, there's a ton of fans are in Australia. Those fans all want to see that stuff. Um, and then of course the wider public wants to see um, the, the bigger ones. You have to have a, you have to have a delivery mechanism that speaks to that reality. So to me, when I hear that, it's like, they're just going to double down on linear TV I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand that at all. I don't under, I mean, I guess that's where they think they're going to get the majority of the money in the short run. And perhaps because of the way the debt deal is structured that they have to do that. Um, but you know, WME, or excuse me, uh, WWE, as I understand it, and it's very different. It's a public company, but they had a bit of a growing pain trying to get the network up and off the ground, but they've got over a million worldwide subscribers. As I understand it, that's, that's exactly what you want. You put the most, you put, you put direct to your consumer, um, through this service, 
this network that they have. And then the bigger stuff, yes, you can get on the network as well. But, you know, if someone just sort of wants to order Royal Rumble or, you know, whatever, they can do that still through their linear television uh, or some other service. And, and they can do that. Um, in any case, I'm sort of off on a bit of a tangent here. But when you're asking about if it's a good or it's a bad year, there have been a lot of good moments. There's been a lot of really bad moments, including some record lows. So there's no denying it was a down year. And whatever money was generated from Mayweather versus McGregor, how are you going to top that in 2018? How are you going to match that in 2018? I suppose if Conor McGregor fights twice, you could do that. But what if he loses twice? Maybe you don't think he will, but you have to at least consider a world where that might happen. Um, then what do you do? So there's something to be said for even if they didn't eat a ton of loss through some accounting tricks, what have they done from a product standpoint to set themselves up for success in the next year? And I think some of these questions remain very much unanswered. Well, says uh, Luke, longtime fan, new shirt owner. Thank you for all the work in 2018. Thank you, buddy. The question, the UFC 220 main and co-mains are stacked. However, is the UFC missing an opportunity to showcase up-and-coming talent on the rest of the pay-per-view card? Um, the fight card does not have a that does have a few open slots. Which fights are rumored to fill these slots? We'll just wait out in time. We'll get to that later. Which fighters are you following as potential breakout stars in 2018? Do you see another potential Max Holloway, Robert Whitaker, Tony Ferguson rising to the top this coming year? Uh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Magomed Sharapov, Zabit Magomed Sharapov. I think it's going to be, again, we'll see how things go. He, ha he does have a loss on his record. That indicates that there might be a, a limit to his ceiling. But based on what I've seen so far, um, and the fact that he's now with Mark Henry, I would be, I'm very, I'll put it this way. I'm very curious to see what he can do in 2018. Because my hunch is that he's going to be out there breaking jaws and, um, hurting people in a very dramatic and difficult way. So there's that. Um, it'll be curious to see what happens with James Vick. I think James Vick has earned some big opportunities. He's been denied them. I think that'll be kind of interesting to watch as well. On the women's side, you partly identified it. Tatiana Suarez is one. I think it's going to be curious to see what happens with Mackenzie Dern. Uh, I'm still not convinced she's ready for the UFC. Her development has been a little bit more um, piecemeal fight to fight, but she is making progress. The progress is undeniable. But I think that's going to be something to watch as well. But for me, like if I'm thinking about one person standing out, it's Zabit Magomed Sharapov. He has the creativity of a prime Anthony Pettis, at least, again, from what he's shown so far. And there's a lot more tests to go. But so far, he has that kind of creativity. He's got a certain overall well-roundedness, uh, comprehensiveness that I like. He takes risks. Um, he takes a good shot and, um, and doesn't get tired. Like there's a lot. To really, to really like about his game. Very curious. Also curious to what happens that I got a technique talk up with him today with Rafael Lovato Jr. A little bit older, a little bit longer in the tooth, but he's beating all the people that you would expect him to beat, including somebody maybe you wouldn't, like Chris Honeycutt. Like that fight was a little bit close, but in the end, Lovato Jr. is just showing he's got a lot of different skills and he can win a lot of different ways. That fight was predominantly on the feet, and Lovato Jr. won. How can Habib overcome his promotional liability status? Part of that is going to be etched into stone because of Conor McGregor, part of it. But let's say he goes up there, has a clean weigh-in performance. Uh, and I mean performance, like shows up, has a good attitude, makes weight no problem. Uh, he does have the one-pound allowance here, so it's something to keep in mind. Remember, he won't have that if he, if he gets to a title fight. But um, I think if he can just put it together a few 
fights where you begin to realize with proper dietary oversight, this is a very manageable task, then I think most of those fears will be allayed. But he's also getting older, so there's some concerns about that as well. Um, so so let's say two, three fights in a row where you're, you can clearly tell if he has this dietitian, it's fine. And uh, the old mealy way um, should get him there. Uh, rank in terms of probability of fighting in 2018. All right, so we have Velasquez, Nate Diaz, Nick Diaz, McGregor, CM Punk, GSP, John Jones, Brock Lesnar, Rousey. Okay, so I'll put at the top the most likely, at the bottom the least likely. At the top, I'll put uh, CM Punk. Then I'll put McGregor. Excuse me, I'll put CM Punk. Then I'll put Velasquez. Then I'll put McGregor. Then I'll put Nate Diaz. Then John Jones. Then GSP. Then Nick Diaz, then Brock, then Rousey. That's how I would go. Which fight are you looking forward to most in 2018? These are already booked. Nganou Miocic, Cormier Volkan, Whitaker Rockhold, and then likely Holloway Edgar, Woodley RDA, DJ Cejudo 2, Connor Diaz 3. Should be Tony, but who knows. So let's go with already booked. Of those three, of Nganou Miocic, Cormier, Volkan Uzdemir, Uzdemir, and then Whitaker Rockhold, I'm going to say Nganou Miocic just because um, Nganou's upside is ridiculous. It, it seems, anyway. Then I'll put Whitaker Rockhold, then I'll put Cormier, Volkan last on that list, personally. For likely fights, I would rank Holloway uh, Edgar as my number one, for sure. After that, if it's Connor Diaz 3, I guess... And then Woodley RDA and then DJ Cejudo 2, I think. Only because those are all great fights, but DJ Cejudo 2 would... I don't know how competitive that would be. Could be wrong, but it seems like that's just not enough there. Uh, breakdown of Cyborg home, please. What path do you give Holly? Or will it be, able to be complete destruction by Justino? Here's the interesting part about this. I see a lot of people giving um, Holly a very good chance to win. What do the, what do the odds makers say? Let's see. According to the odds makers, they don't. They see it as a minus 360 for Cyborg plus 325 for Holmes. So they definitely uh, don't agree with that. But in any case, you know, it's just odds makers. It's not a, it's not a prediction of the future. Um, they, I think they believe in the ability of Holly to stick and move. I did see something that concerned me, though, for folks who were supporting her, saying things like, well, I'm not sure she's ironed out. They were like... Um, they're talking about some of the ground issues she had against Misha Tate, and they're like, yeah, it's been a while, but I'm not sure she's ironed out the issues to be to combat what Cyborg can do. Let me rest assured, there's no way she has. Cyborg is um, a very, very... I mean, look at the time Marlus Kunin had between fights, and she couldn't do anything on the ground to Cyborg. There's, I would be... I wouldn't be shocked if Holly won. No. I'd be shocked if Holly completely negated anything on the ground. From cyborg i would be very very and we're assuming that cyborg is not just like you know taking a fight to the ground not trying to hold her there you know if she lets her up okay well whatever but uh any kind of f sustained effort on the ground to you know have the fight there i would be shocked if that wasn't completely overwhelming for holly holm i think they would probably be on radically different levels in that sense on the feet however it becomes a much more interesting contest and especially as we have this new cyborg who is a little bit patient with her footwork a little bit patient with shot selection. I do expect the fight to go long. I do think that might help 
a little bit Holly Holm. So on the feet, stick and move could be kind of an interesting thing. It's going to be hard to say exactly, but um, I don't think it, I don't necessarily think it'll be destruction by Holm. Holm isn't typically destroyed. She got submitted and put to sleep by Misha, but she was losing that fight. Misha was, and it was a bit of sort of a hail mary at the end there. Um, so I expect Cyborg to win. But how and under what mechanism, I think, is very much up for debate. Marlon Marais and how it turns fans in a short time period. Marlon Marais has been on a nice win streak ever since dropping his UFC debut back at UFC 212 with wins over John Dobson and a brutal knee of Sterling on short notice, no less, in a month span. When John Lineker went down earlier this week, Marlon was one of the few names that had put his name out there to step up to face Jimmy Rivera on shorter notice than the Sterling fight. And a lot of fans, including myself, gravitated towards Marlon for wanting him... Uh, for him wanting to step up, especially after Marlon had called out Rivera after the Sterling KO as well. Fast forward to Monday, Tuesday, and the story's coming out about Rivera accepting the fight with Marlon, but it went from a bantamweight fight to a 138 catchweight to a 140 catchweight to a featherweight 145-pound bout to Rivera being taken off the car completely after two after the two could not agree to certain conditions. After Marlon had posted the video on Twitter Monday afternoon, has perception of any other fighter changed quickly, changed that quickly? Over what seems to like a twenty-four to forty-eight hour period compared to the reactions to Marlon. That that didn't that wasn't a good look for Marlon Morais. It was interesting was he he gets that win over Dots and then he gets the incredible win over Sterling, and then he had that moment where he was like, "I'll I'll be your dancing partner." And I thought to myself, "Wow, if Marlon Morais wins that fight, that's a big F. But if he wins that fight, you know, to beat those guys in what a 49, 50 day span, um, it was like he held a tournament and it was just for himself." And then to just breeze through it like that, if, if that's what had happened, would have been, I mean, you, for, for someone who would have had a slow, uh, relatively inauspicious UFC debut, that would have been an incredible turn of events, right? I mean, just a miraculous turn of events. Um, and then that happened. My hunch is that I think he probably toyed with the idea, or maybe even he wanted it. And I think someone put in his ear eventually. Um, that this is probably not a good idea. Um, we're not really ready. We're going to be fighting at a weight that's not optimal for us. Um, you have a lot to lose here taking this on short notice. This is a tough opponent. Let's rethink this one. I think there's probably some enthusiasm about maybe they could take this and then have some, you know, again, have that incredible run. But these are why those runs are so rare because they can fall apart very easily. And I think my sense is that for him to go 180 like that or to then move the goalposts, on weight, someone in his camp, friend, trainer, wife, manager, whoever, somebody out there was probably like, we should rethink this. And they're probably right. That's the sad part about it is like that was the not a great way to handle it in terms of how it ultimately transpired. But it, I wouldn't recommend fighting Jim Rivera on short notice at 145 either. Um, it, it, that doesn't seem like a very prudent way to go. So it would be an incredible reward. And you could say, oh, what's the risk? You lost outside of your weight class. Right, but you just built up all this momentum from beating Aljamain Sterling and then Dodson back-to-back. You got to know when to fold them a little bit. And folding was the right call. But if you're going to make these videos and get on social media and say these things, and then ultimately to fold, it, yeah, you're right. It's a very, very bad look. I, I just mean to say, in the end, I completely understand his perspective and not wanting to take it ultimately. It's just, if you did, if you should have thought that through before you went down that path is the issue. Icarus and Russian state 
sponsored doping with such a complex and intricate doping program uncovered in the Sochi Olympics, not just the Sochi Olympics. Is it at all likely that the Kremlin has also made attempts to do the same for high-profile MMA fighters such as Fedor and Habib? Um, you know, I don't really know. Uh, nor do I have any reason to suspect that's true. And my hunch is that if it's an athlete not related to an Olympic program, which, again, typically has a measure of state sponsorship and state oversight, then I'm less inclined to believe that's true. Plus, what do you guys want to say? I mean, either USADA works or it doesn't, right? I mean, there's limits to any program, but... I think most of you are pretty satisfied with that level of oversight. Well, with Fedor, he's at the state commission, but, you know, does anyone really see Fedor as some kind of tremendous threat at this point? Uh, and with uh, Habib, certainly he is an incredibly talented fighter, but he's also under USADA testing protocol. So if you guys believe in that, I'm not really sure what else there is to say. The part of the state, Russian state-sponsored issue was that their version of USADA called RUSADA was in cahoots that they were part of the cover-up um that they were swapping samples or tampering with samples or um any number of different tricks to help them avoid any kind of adverse findings so you would have to say in the case of habib that either he's avoided testing which is possible by being in dagestan certain parts of the year or traveling or whatever um you could, you could say that, or you could say that USADA is complicit, right? I guess you could say that too. Um, but in this case, um, it's a different scenario. And someone adds, I'd add Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, and Orlov to that list. But I'm a Penguins fan. I don't want Malkin thrown in there too. Fair point. Uh, hi, Luke. I've been watching MMA pretty solidly for over a decade now, and I've noticed that these three submissions, arm bars, guillotines, and rear nakeds, seem to be the most common in terms of their finish rate. Please correct me if I'm wrong. The finish rate might be the argument that is a little bit less true because a lot of people attempt, for example, bad guillotines or bad arm bars, and they don't work. So the finishing rate might be low. I think what you're talking about is um, what are the most common submission attempts that we see and yeah, probably arm bars, guillotines, and rear nakeds. That's that's really true. My question, are these truly the most effective submissions in jiu-jitsu, or are high-level MMA fighters just better able to avoid getting caught in more technical holds? I feel like I used to see a lot more submissions via triangle, kimura, and leg locks. Um, I still think there's a lot of technical development that happens. I, and, and look, when you say arm bar, what do you mean? Arm bar from the guard? Arm bar from the mount? Um, arm bar from some kind of other transition, arm bar from, you know, neon belly. Like, what are you talking about? There's lots of different kinds of arm bars. So um, always keep that in mind. And there's lots of different kinds of guillotines too. Arm in, same side, uh, no arm in, one side, you know, marcellatine finish, rolling to the mount, one hand posted. Like, there's all different kinds of that too. So you got to be sort of, you have to clarify exactly what you mean there. But let's sort of take it for what it's worth and what you're talking about here. The triangle, in my judgment, is probably a little bit harder to nail on people than the uh, armbar. At least the armbar, it provides you a, a bit easier of a bail and recover uh, opportunity than a triangle. Triangle's a little bit, I mean, you have to really trap a person, bring them to you, seal the hold, and then there's a few things you have to do in terms of it. It requires, I think, a little bit more details for finishing. Not that the armbar doesn't, but the triangle's a little bit more complicated. Kimuras, um, I still think can work, but you just don't see a lot of people, um, like in jiu-jitsu, you see a lot of people who might stay on their side. 
And that might be a tactical reason for that. It might open them up to certain kinds of Kimuras in a ways that in MMA, it's either, you know, if you're on your side, it's because you're in transition getting up. Um, you do see a lot of bad Kimuras, you know, where someone's trying to do it, where they're getting past and they're just holding it because it's a strongman move. Um, and with leg locks, I don't think anyone's really adapted a great system for avoiding punishment. There are some guys who are good at it. Ian Entwistle for a time was one. You know, obviously, Husmar Palharis is others. But the guys who are really good at those kinds of things only got good at them because they prioritized their training around them, which means they didn't prioritize their training around other things. So what you need is somebody who has a lot of leg lock experience from an early age so that they can pull that out if they need it, but they have other ways to win. I mean, a punch to the face is still just very simple and effective uh, if, if you know you can find a way to make it work. So to me, arm bars, guillotines, and rear nakeds. But even then, you're seeing interesting setups. You know, Pedro Munoz goes on Russell Doan like he's taking the back and then sits for an you know, arm inside guillotine. You know, pretty incredible stuff. Um, I forget who did the arm bar from the neon belly scenario at the uh, Tough 25 finale and then rear nakeds. You know, you're just seeing a lot of, of guys who realizing uh, I just want to get myself to the back. I don't want to mess with mount if I can avoid it, or I might have mount for just a second, but what I really want is the back. You're just seeing a lot of that too. All right, it is 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine and let's answer some of these questions. Uh, let's see. Not sure how often you listen to the JRE as often as I can, but not as often as I should. The Rogan has mentioned a few times that his pro kickboxer friend is now training and actually fighting while on psychedelic mushrooms. Should there not be a liability doping issues with doing this? It seems like a big deal to me. Uh, I would need to see. I would need to hear what he's talking about. Maybe he means like in the gym, in which case it's different, but. Uh, someone says, I came late to the chat. Did you talk about Meltzer talking about the UFC's possible 320 million EBITDA? What is that? Uh, earnings before interest something. What is I forget what it all stands for. Amortization. Uh, yes, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. A company's earnings, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, is an accounting measure calculated using a company's net earnings before interest expenses, depreciation. In other words, how much profit it makes with its present assets and its operations on the products it produces and sells as well as providing a proxy for cash flow. I have not heard that. I would need to see it before I can give an accurate comment. If that's true, that's kind of interesting. Is Bellator more interested in sport or just drawing power? Why would they not include an elite heavyweight like Minikov if interested in sport or if only interested in ratings? Why not include a proven draw in the form of Bobby Lashley? I don't know that... Uh, that Lashley is exactly as much of a proven draw as folks think he is, especially now in his late career. And part of this is also a function of um, who's available. My understanding is Minikov was hard to deal with. Is it fair to compare the title reign of George St. Pierre to Duran to me? Both entered a title fight knowing who their future opponent would be if they won and chose to relinquish the belt in some fashion rather than fight the next challenger. I sort of made this point when I made when I argued about St. Pierre dropping the belt. They're very almost radically different. Al almost, almost almost not co comparable because uh, one guy gave it up potentially for medicinal reasons or health reasons uh, and did so very quickly. Another one sort of waited to be stripped, which feels very different. But on the other hand, I think the 
the one unifying constant there is that both fighters basically felt like they could it would be okay to drop a belt after just one fight without defending it and they had very very different reasons for that but what does it say about a ufc belt when two fighters in the same year basically part with it without much incident um that to me i think says a lot what's the last will smooth will smith movie that was good jesus that's a great question. IMDB. Let me see. Look at his filmography. Shall we? Uh, as an actor. Concussion? Um, Jesus. Not many. Ali, before that? Probably about it. Look, if you could make one Star Wars movie, what would it be about? It'd be about Darth Vader murdering every Star Wars dork in the universe. Just going galaxy to galaxy like he did in that last scene. Remember that last scene in Rogue One where, where Darth Vader just starts slashing and burning like a dude clearing brush with a machete? It would be him doing that. Remember that old movie? I think which one was it? Where Kevin's? It was Jay and Silent Bob. Look up all the things that people said about them on moviepoopshoot.net or whatever.com, and they go house to house, start beating up kids. That's what I want Darth Vader to do if he was in real life. Just go house to house and just start slashing Star Wars nerds who didn't like the Last Jedi. I can't believe Chewbacca didn't have more of a speaking role. Really, can't believe that. Um. So it says, I think Connors, this is this person writing. I think Connors' featherweight run doesn't compare to Holloway's. Top wins. Connor has Aldo, Mendez, and Poirier. Holloway, Aldo twice, Pettis, Swanson, Stevens, Lamas, Oliveira. Yeah, fair point. How do you think Habib does at 170? Uh, like I mentioned before, I think some of the incident, like the success of RDA, who was controlled by Habib at 155, I think his ability to physically impose a physically imposing style, right? That's what he is. Like, he has a physical style. I thought that was that would only work at 155 for him to have that kind of success up. It's still not clear what the limit is, you know, because Cowboy Cerrone has success at 170, but it is pretty clear that there's notion that it's feast or famine, right? You can either win at 155 or get murdered at 170. Mm, that needs some rethinking. But if your style is also predicated on, on the takedown, that is going to be harder at 170. It's just going to be a lot more work to get down there. Uh, Champions League winner 2018. Real, PSG, United, Bayern, or Barca? I'm going to say PSG, even though I don't really believe that. I just can't admit it's going to be Barca. Bayern's playing well, but I don't know. Real is just not going to win this year, and United is not a good team. So, Shouts to Sean Sheehan. <laughs> um, I'm a sports writer for a few newspapers in Oregon, and I want to know how you avoid burnout covering your beat. Any tips? Um, lots of booze, lots of weed. How do you feel about the shift from the organization doing all the matchmaking compared to now where the guys are picking their matchups? Is it good for the sport? Well, ultimately, they don't pick them in that sense, but I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I don't like it. I don't like anything about it. I think we, I think the ideal relationship, um, I think the ideal scenario we need to have is that the fighters are heavily compensated financially. There's a premium on talent and that most of the matchmaking decisions are made without their input. And I know that sounds unfair and unreasonable. 
I, I want to find some kind of an equitable balance of goods here. But I think the more you allow fighters to control matchmaking on balance, the further that gets away from the centered consumer interest. They have very, very different needs and expectations and wants in terms of matchmaking. And uh, I think the more they're in control, the, the further away from something important we get. Does Connor fight Tony in March? I don't believe it. You never know. You never know, but I don't believe it. <laughs> UFC is underpromoting Cyborg Holm. I get asked this for every UFC event. I don't feel a ton of buzz for this one. We might feel more by Saturday. I guess we're going to have to see. I don't feel like they went above and beyond the call of duty, but they've probably done as much as they normally do. They had a LA junket, so to speak. They've produced a number of video assets to promote it. They're on social media promoting it. Um, they're having press conferences this week, other events. They're doing the things they normally do. Is that under-promoted? I suppose that depends on your perspective. Uh, let's see. Use the first words that spring to mind for the following fighters. Bisping, Warhorse, DJ, Incredible Talent, John Jones, Mystery, uh, Cyborg, Beast, Cormier, Ambassador. Let's see. The UFC countdown shows on YouTube, for example. Uh, are great at getting me pumped for events. Your thoughts on fighter documentaries on FS1 for current fighters? Builds interest in champs, could increase pay-per-view and fight pass buys. I feel too disconnected to most fighters. It's true, but I used, to, I used to watch these all the time and I never watch them anymore. I don't know how many, I mean, I don't know what kind of numbers they do, but um, they used to, when they were on Spike, they were really a big deal. Was, in some ways, the only way to watch them. Um, and then there was sort of this era where everyone had their own proprietary player and you could watch them on the website. And now we're sort of far away from that too. But um, I think they're fine and they're well-made. I don't know how much of a difference they make in the end because even with those Road to the like road to Fox ones, they air, they do okay. Um, but do they meaningfully promote the fight? I mean, the current ratings would indicate that not necessarily that's the case. Um Why did post-fight press conferences go from a panel of fighters to individual Q&A? I think most media members will tell you they like that better, but it's just a way, I think, you know, look, some guys get up there, they don't answer any questions, and um, some guys get them all, and and this allows them to do things in a more uh, way where, you know, you know what time you're going to be up there and what not time you're not going to be up there, and, you know, you can get things done, like shower, do USADA testing, get cleaned up, you know, so it just sort of creates a better environment, I think, generally for the fighters, and it allows media to, to have a more targeted focus for coverage. How do you think Nganu's punching power compares to elite heavyweight boxers. Um, it's probably comparable, but remember power punching also means sort of like, in, like in one big shot, probably comparable over the course of 12 rounds. Hard to know if that's comparable. Favorite moments of the year. Top three. Um, Jesus. I'm signing new contracts for my jobs. That's number one. Uh, number two, um, will be my number two favorite moment of the year. I would say collectively, collectively, all of the, the I don't know. I don't know what be my number two. Number two moment of the year. What will be my number two moment of the year? Oh, I guess uh, getting to do my Mayweather-McGregor post-fight show from Las Vegas was kind of fun. That was kind of fun. And number three, I guess I would say the John Jones incident at UFC 214, only because in retrospect, it's sort of funny uh, and memorable, certainly memorable, but uh, also instructive. So 
funny, memorable, instructive. It's about as good as you're going to get. Also got a lot more fans on social media from it, so thanks. Uh, okay. Let's see. What's next for Edson Barboza after he hands Habib his first loss? Well, if, in fact, he does that, they might have to do like a Tony Barboza rematch or they might do Tony and Connor. I don't know what they're going to do, but that would be, again, I think the winner in either case, the next time they fight, whether it's for an interim title or, their, or Connor's title or whoever's, it needs to be for a belt. I don't care which belt it is, but it needs to be for a belt. Um, you should name the crease John Crease. Yes, this one. Yeah, I know. I'll fix that. Cobra Kai never dies. True or false for 2018? Connor fights GSP. False. Canelo fights G Triple G. True. Lomachenko fights Garcia. True. Probably. Joanna Jacek fights Shevchenko. True. King Velasquez fights Francis Ngannou. I'm going to say true as part of wishful thinking. Who the hell is this? Oh, I gave up. You want to hear about a good movie? It's a good movie. It's charming. It's called um, A Bad Idea Gone Wrong. You can check it out if you have like uh, YouTube movies or Fandango Now or Voodoo, any of those things. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fun little movie. Um, it's short, uh, easy to get through easy to follow plot and there's some real it's it's well done so go see a bad idea gone wrong uh with all the buzz surrounding heavyweights any word on vitaly minikov's contract not insofar as bellator is concerned but i might be talking about ufc much just talked about when it comes to fighters, fight and coach of the year, but what would you say was the gym team of the year? Ooh. Man. Well, you know what? They had some they they Cody Garbrand lost, but Team Alpha Male had some really strong performances this year. Um I think what I would say is I'll I'll give it like a like a like a placeholder award in the sense of there was a lot of really uh good gyms that had a lot of uh Look, the major ones had some major success like they always do. I know Jackson Wink's on a bit of a losing skid, but they had some big wins this year. ATT had some big wins this year. They had a really sort of a bit of a resurgent year in many ways. Um, you know, uh, Elevation Fight Team had some big wins. and um, But I would say probably maybe I call them the East Coast Super Friends, those donks like uh, Marlon Marais and Eddie Alvarez, all those guys up there did pretty well. But really, I think the thing that sort of occurred to me in 2017 was that you saw some success from people who came from gyms you never heard of. I saw a lot more of that this time. There's beginning to be some best practices from guys. And sometimes you'll have a coach that had like one or two UFC fights or they fought in strike force or something. But they, it turns out that they're really good coaches. And it turns out they might not have been able to bring their skills to bear in a way where they were contending for a UFC title on pay-per-view in Las Vegas. But they do know a lot about the fight game and they do know a lot, a lot about training and that, that role naturally suits them. I'm expecting more of that in 2018 where, yeah, look, the big gyms are always going to have big fighters and big wins. Always. But I thought this year the little gyms began to assert themselves, not in the most dynamic of ways, but in surprising ways where they were – it wasn't just they were getting fighters in positions to win big fights. It was that they were um, they were creating fighters with a level of technical acumen that I didn't think was possible from given the scale of operations. That surprised me. See anything else? 
bunch more questions. Let's go and let me pick one more. A couple more of these. People ask about the Diaz brothers every week. I don't want you want me to tell you. Let's see. Someone says, don't be testing Ovechkin. Uh, let's see. Uh, God, there's a lot of good questions. I don't have enough time. How about this one? Okay, one last question of the year. Do I really want to go to this question for what? You know what? How about this one? Last question of the year. DC and Miocic are strangely both facing huge KO artists, and given their careers and respective weight classes, they've taken plenty of shots. And Gnu is already the favorite, even though Stipe has been on an impressive tear over high-caliber opponents. But I'm kind of thinking that a lot of people are sleeping on Volkan and the likelihood of him winning at the same gusto as Francis. DC's title reign has included a near loss to Rumble the first time around. That's exaggerating it. Same thing against Gus in third round. That's true. He avoided most of the danger in the next two rounds against Silva and AJ, but he got viciously KO'd by Jones in their rematch. Um, what's your take on this? Yeah, look, Daniel Cormier is almost 40 years old. Volkan Uzdemir, even if he doesn't, it, to me, he might be a power puncher. I'm not saying he's not, but here's what I know he is. He's an accurate, very fast puncher, which means he's able to land shots they don't see coming, which might as well just be power punches. You know, If you see a power punch coming and you can kind of roll with it, it's not the end of the world. If you don't see a medium to decent shot coming, you can put your lights out. And that's what I think Ozdemir has. He has really good accuracy, really good speed, and that's a lethal combination early. The problem is... We've seen him in longer fights against guys, but you know, it, it wasn't sure we learned a whole we learned a whole lot against Manawa and against uh, Serkinov. We saw that he was really, really good early, and I'm sure that's true here. But being good against Serkinov early, we've seen Serkinov can kind of be not a slow starter, but can be overwhelmed. Um, and you know, the Manawa wins as clean as they come, but Manawa is not Daniel Cormier. So I think to me, if I'm Daniel Cormier, I'm really trying to lengthen this one out because if to me, he might be a power puncher, and that might stay throughout a fight, but the speed will go down. The accuracy is partly a function of the speed in certain cases, um, or at least semi-related to it in a way where they work in tandem, and if one goes down, the other one's not nearly as valuable. I think that's what I'd be looking for. But do I think that Daniel Cormier, do I think your raising concerns about his ability to take a shot are legitimate? I do. I absolutely do. Uh, let me just say something here real quickly because we got to go. I really appreciate you guys watching. Um, thank you so much. I know there's been... A lot of technical problems with this, not merely this year, but over the years. But a um, couple things. Number one, I got a new chair. I got a new backdrop. Uh, today, I'm not, I don't have it here. I won't get it till uh, about a week or so. I bought a new computer. I know some of you won't believe me when I'm about to tell you this, but there are some major changes coming here um, um, to this YouTube experience. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of them. I'm not going to promise anything other than... I, I would expect some very significant changes to how you watch this um, in 2018. And you can say whatever you want, but they're already in motion. Uh, buying a, the com a new computer is merely the, I mean, a tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So be on the lookout. I am looking to make some noise with this thing. Um, not just this one, but with all my efforts in that first quarter of 2018. Uh, it's coming. So, so thank you to everyone who's been patient. Thank you to everyone who has watched this throughout the course of the year. I really appreciate it. Um, big things coming in 2018 for not just this site and me, 
but I think the sport of MMA, it's going to be a good first quarter. I'm really excited about it. Barbus is gone, but I know he sends his regards. Um, and I just want to thank you guys for making this possible for another year. It's been really fun. I really appreciate it through all the ups, through all the downs, through all the craziness of 2017. We did it, gang. We did it. Another year is in the books. So do me one last favor. Give this video a like. Subscribe to MMA Fighting. Uh, I know I, the, the gang is out in Las Vegas. Ariel's out there. Casey's out there. Esther's out there. We're going to have you covered like we always do for UFC 219. So don't go anywhere. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, which will be 2018, stay frosty.